Digital 410 Productions proudly presents the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast with your hosts, Dodd Abernathy, Jeff Kopsetta, and Henry Sledge. What's going on, everybody, and Happy New Year, or Merry Christmas, and all that good stuff. It has been a long two weeks since we've all gotten together and shared our love for all things World War II history. I hope everybody in the listening audience had a great Christmas and a Happy New Year, and Santa Claus brought you everything that you want. And uh, some of the things you didn't ask for, you got anyway. <laughs> but uh, it's nice seeing everybody again. Joining us, as always, is Mr. Jeff Copsetta, Mr. Henry Sledge, and our special guest tonight is Mr. Matt De Palma. We'll get into Matt here momentarily. Just a little refresher for the audience. How was your all's Christmases and New Year's, Jeff? Henry, Matt? Well, man, I'll tell you, you know, for me, it's always the best Christmas because it seems like I've always got a newborn for Christmas, <laughs> the first helps. Christmas around this household. But I will say I'm a little disappointed because, I mean, I did everything you were supposed to do. I wrote a list. I sat on Henry's lap, and I still didn't get a 50 cal. So I don't know what oh. I got to do next year. Yeah, you know, sometimes Santa's a little reluctant to put that in a sleigh. You know, deers get a little anxious when they got live music. Midget, <laughs> live munitions. Thank you. Live musician around and heavy-ass guns. Um, how was yours, Henry? Oh, it was fantastic. Got a bunch of books. Did you get half the books that we've talked about in the last three months on this podcast? <laughs> I, yeah, actually, September Hope was one of them. Fantastic. I just finished that, and I'm uh, I'm into the Peleliu Tragic Triumph. And, Henry, there's something i got to ask you about in there um, okay. that I've learned about Pavuvu that was never really mentioned in some of the other uh, documentation I've read. But speaking okay. of books, joining us is author, historian, and all-around interesting fellow, Mr. Matt De Palma. Matt, how are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's an honor and pleasure to be here. Now, I noticed that flag behind you, and if my memory serves from standing at attention at the beginning of every VKE for the last five and a half years, it usually rolls sometimes near the Marine Corps birthday. You, in fact, sir, were, and still are, a Marine, correct? That is correct. I was uh, 10 years of salt amphib. And uh, it was 82 to 92. So it's been a little while. But uh, as you know, by my uh, demeanor at VKE, that some things just never really leave you. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, as I open up the show, you're, you have an interesting background. Just for uh, the yeah. sake of our audience, and is that your microphone or your camera? Oh, that's the light so that everybody can see what I look like. That's which all good. Probably, maybe I should turn this off. Oh, look at you! You got a fancy ring light and all. You stole that from your daughter, though, didn't you? Technical <laughs> issue there. I'll try and keep an eye on it for you. <laughs> no worries. But uh, for the sake of our audience, give us a little um, reader's digest of um, your background, as you just mentioned, uh, the Marine, your service in the Marine Corps. But um, mm -hmm. give us a little background in your other extracurricular activities that uh, brought you into doing some pretty cool stuff, as I learned about looking at your bio tonight. Yes, definitely. Um, I was uh, I was born on Guam uh, in 1960. Dad was stationed there. It was mom and dad's first uh, duty station together as a married couple. Uh, and it allows me to claim having a direct connection to World War II in that when I was born on Guam, there were still 23 Japanese soldiers on the island who were not aware that the war was over. Um, so I'm, I'm not a World War II veteran. I'm so close. Uh, 
So I, I can claim that as my uh, direct connection to World War II. You know, it's interesting because uh, um, we always hear about the one particular the one particular cat who who held out until what early seventies it was, but yeah, you're saying there's twenty three seventy four. What was his name? Uh, Odo. Onoda. Onoda. Yep. Yeah. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. Didn't they have to like go track down his old surviving like commanding officer to get him to go come out of the woods? Is that true or is that folklore? They did. They had to uh, find him so that they could bring him to Guam and and give uh, Lieutenant Anoda the order to um, uh, to surrender because otherwise he was you know, he was afraid that uh, surrendering would be a dishonor to his family and to the and to the Japanese Empire. Um, but when the uh, former commander came out and gave him the order to surrender, that's, that's when he surrendered. And of course, you know, thankfully he came back to a hero's welcome because he had held out uh, as, uh, as a, a point of honor. Um, so when he came back to Japan, he thought he was returning in disgrace, but it was the exact opposite. Now, did anybody, or maybe he even did, did anybody ghostwriter? fill in and do a bar it would be interesting to see how he survived all those years yeah there's a book out there on yeah I, i've read his book so, yeah there you go but it's yeah, been I years ago a long time ago yeah i have to track that down because that'd be so i mean obviously the surviving that long but just the day in day out surviving i mean clearly he wasn't mm-hmm. getting any rations or any supplies dropped he just had to scrounge mm-hmm. and whatever just surviving out there alone yeah but, he was living off the land yeah yeah, absolutely. Stealing what he could from the locals, that sort of thing. Yeah. yeah. Wasn't that in the Philippines? Um, there was another group that was in the Philippines. There was another group that was in uh, uh, Burma. It was two men uh, who held out, um, and they weren't military. They were actually military contractors who were there as part of like a construction battalion or something. Hmm. Um, they didn't get the heroes welcome because they were staying alive by thievery and uh, a couple of other dishonorable deeds. But, um, but yeah, Onoto was, was the most famous one. So on Guam, you said they had 23 of them. And what, 1960 when I was born. 1960. Yeah. A lot of them came out of the woods shortly after I left. You know, it's like they were just waiting for yeah. me to leave. All that De Palma baby's gone. Let's come out. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Got rid of another Marine. <laughs> <laughs> and so as uh, after you left Guam and your life progressed, what roads did you travel down? Um, uh, being a Navy brat, we uh, served in a number of spots, uh, Virginia Beach, Hawaii, uh, Pensacola, uh, Jacksonville, Florida. Um, dad was 29 years Navy. Uh, I went to, uh, University of Florida, uh, took up graphic design and illustration there. Um, no, that's the old school graphic design. That's not Photoshop and computers. That's uh, light tables and razor blades. Yeah, that was Rubolith and stat cameras. So, uh, that goes back quite a ways. That's, that's where I picked up my, uh, my, uh, uh, love of football and graphic design together uh the company i worked for had an exclusive with walmart to provide all of the uh collegiate t-shirts um 
in Florida and through much of the southeast. Yeah, screw the light. <laughs> it's good without and, it. Don't worry about it. You're good without it. It's, it's, technology, I, ah, phooey. <laughs> um, but at any rate, um, so yeah, that's that's where I got my love for uh, all of these championship games. Um, uh, Henry, <laughs> um, doing a lot of the bowl designs and designs for the various schools and uh, hmm. such like that. So it was it was a uh, was a great experience. Got me launched into graphic design. Uh, it's where I picked up using the computer, uh, which is what I do now. I'm I'm currently a graphic designer for a company called Jacobs, which is a very large company that does a lot of uh, government contracts. Uh, I work in the technology section. I do a lot of the graphic design for the proposals we submit to the government. Fun. Now, you're one of the few we've had on the show who who dedicates their historical reenacting and research, and we'll get to hear momentarily your years of graphic design has led you into uh, publishing some interesting books and helping out in the hobby. But with your background and all your knowledge on World War II and the military, what led you to, what sparked your fascination with the German side? Uh, well, we do obviously have the prettier uniforms, but, you know, apart oh, from Oh, you that, had Hugo Boss on your side. We just had some uh, people know, with I, some... I some... had to bring that up. <laughs> that was spoken from a true Marine, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, buddy. <laughs> Jeff, is, uh, Jeff is Army, by the way, so Jeff served as well. Oh, awesome. Thanks for your service, Jeff. But uh, yeah, at any rate, um, I, I first got interested in it when I was uh, growing up. My uncle Dave was a 36th Infantry Division veteran. Um, he served, he landed in Salerno in 1943. Uh, he was in the Louisiana maneuvers in 1940. Um, he served at Anzio, uh, Rome. Uh, Leary Valley, Monte Cassino, Rapido River. I mean, a lot of the really early, really bad uh, experiences for a U.S. Army soldier to have to experience. Um, and I think I was 10, maybe 11 at the time uh, when I asked him, you know, who had the best army uh, in Europe during World War II? And I fully expected him to say the U.S. did just out of, uh, you know, pride of having served and whatnot. Now, he wasted no time whatsoever and said the Germans without even hesitation. Uh, he said that the Germans were better equipped, better led, uh, had better discipline, and were easily the most professional army in Europe during World War II. And at reenactments, and especially at VKE, I know you've heard me say this, Don, but the most impressive and important thing is our guys beat them. Mm -hmm. They turned the most professional army in Europe around and very sand soundly beat them. And it wasn't just our guys, of course, you know, it was, there was an awful lot that contributed to it. It wasn't just the grunts on the ground, but that played a major part of it. Um, and as such, you know, my uncle Dave had that level of respect for the German soldier, I started doing research into them and, and, you know, what was it that made them different? Because there weren't very many of them that were members of the Nazi party. So, you know, you could portray a German soldier and I like getting out of the reenactments and 
doing the best I can using all of my tactical knowledge that I acquired as a jarhead um, and, and doing what I can to make it as difficult for the Americans as I can, because that's really the kind of legacy we're trying to show. I mean, the reenactors want to let them know that this wasn't the Hollywood World War II. This wasn't a matter of us going in knowing full well we were going to win this. Um, this also wasn't a cakewalk for the GIs uh, and the Brits and the Marines and everybody else that participated. This was, this was one heck of a thing that had to be done. Um, and they rose to the challenge, as, you know, like Tom Brokaw says, the greatest generation. They rose to the challenge, did what had to be done, and defeated you know, what is very easily recognized as probably one of the most heinous organizations the human race has ever turned out. Yeah, Matt, I've got uh, a comment there. You may be interested. Something I just came across listening to a history lecture, really mainly talking about uh, the, the Peloponnesian Wars uh, mm -hmm. and how, you know, we, we look at how basically what we get our knowledge from that is, is mostly from Thucydides. And uh, and how and how his outlook was, and um, it's interesting. And, and the guy doing the the lecture brought up, you know, when they look at that 27 year period, uh, you know, it was kind of broken up in chunks. Where we've kind of collectively, it, oh, it's the Peloponnesian War. It lasted, you know, 27 years. But he made the uh, comparison to how will people a thousand years from now see the German military? Are they going to see World War One and World War Two, or are they going to see the German Empire? And like so many other empires in history, they had these sort of micro wars, you know, the Punic Wars. But they weren't; it wasn't over. It was a it was a war and then a breather. And I'm curious to see your your input on that. You know, or what what is your opinion on that? The great, the mighty German army. Do you think? Future historians will see it not like we do in two separate world wars, but but more of a a coming up, a breather, and then a final you know push. Mm -hmm. yeah, it's an interesting way of looking at it. I mean, you, 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 there's no way you could have had World War II without having had World War One and the Versailles Treaty first. That that much is definitely obvious. Um, but I mean, there's enough written now that I don't think that they will blend the two in a thousand years. Of course, a lot can happen between now and then, so nobody knows for sure, but um, I have to come back and figure that one out later. Um, but I, I think that because you're talking about two very distinct countries, um, Germany prior to 1918 and Germany post 1933, and there was plenty of mess that happened in between the two. Um, as a matter of fact, one of the things that I'm working on right now, one of the books I'm working on, uh, is the Allied Air Offensive through German paperwork. I'm working on kind of like a pre-volume uh, of that, where I concentrate on Germany preparing between 1933 and 1939 with their air defenses. But in order to understand that, you have to look at everything that happened from Versailles uh, and through the Weimar Republic and why the Weimar Republic was so reviled at the time. Um, so I, I really don't think that there's going to be that uh, combining of the two, like with the Peloponnesian War, because that's a really good, uh, really good point to make. 
Um, but I think because of that Weimar era in between the two, that historians in the future will be able to keep the two separated. Now, one of the books, you, you've, you have three published books, but one of them, which is very interesting, kind of leading off of what you're just talking about, the book you're working on now, you have the German military travel papers of the Second World War. How did that project come about? And I guess before, I guess maybe leading into that is, how did you take your graphic design history knowledge and say, hey, you know, there's a, there's a need or a desire just for my own fun to start researching and recreating some of this important paperwork? Yeah. Uh, well, thanks. Uh, I have, uh, I've been collecting paperwork for about 30 years, um, all sorts of historical paperwork. I have documents, newspapers, ephemera, all sorts of stuff from, uh, I think the oldest piece I got is like 1740. Wow. Um, and then up through uh, Second World War and into the early years of the Cold War. Um, and I just collected all of this because, you know, I couldn't afford to collect firearms. I couldn't afford to collect helmets and canteens and uniforms. And plus, I really didn't have any place to put them, even if I did. Uh, these white binders that you see behind me are all filled with various eras of paperwork. And see, that's what uh, was going to be my next question is some of that yes. stuff. Well, <laughs> paperwork, you know, it disintegrates. You know, Jeff's worked in museums and Henry has... Um, experience with museums and Jeff, you have your microphone muted for some reason, but um, um, how do you prevent the disintegration and storage of them? And furthermore, when you said you know you, you don't didn't have the money for canteens or the space for helmets, one might argue collecting paperwork is a hell of a lot harder because one, less of it was manufactured than M1 helmets, and two, as I just previously stated, the fragile conditions in which they can easily disintegrate, especially German paper, you know. Paperwork that was probably at some point tried to be destroyed when they were, you know, running from the allies. That's that's a worthy cause to try to collect all that stuff and preserve it. Well, I'm I'm doing my part. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> I don't know what museum is going to end up with all of this when I pass. Um, Penny and I, my wife, we don't have any kids. Um, so if you know of a good museum to recommend it to or a good auction house, depending on whether I kick off before she does. <laughs> What's the old um, saying? My biggest fear is that I die and my wife sells all my guns for what I told her I paid them for. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I'm in luck because uh, Penny and I met reenacting uh, ages ago. Um, I'm not going to say how long, um, but. Uh, 2010. Seriously, though, uh, we, we've been married for over 37 years. Um, we met reenacting and everybody, just about everybody I know that I reenact with have pretty much said that I have the coolest wife on the planet because I can go spend you know, like 50 or or $100 on a single piece of paper. And when I show it to her, her reaction is cool. Yes. <laughs> So it's not really an issue of you paid how much for that? You know, she understands the value of, uh, of the document as a historical, uh, you know, item um, plus as a, uh, uh, you know, an investment. Um, you know, a lot of my paperwork is appreciated over the years because I've been collecting it for so darn long. Um, but that was, that was really what got me going. Uh, I, kn I know you're familiar with William Zukauskas. Um, uh, another reenactor down there in Florida. He's been a good friend of mine. Uh, well, actually, I think I've known Bill longer than I've known Penny. 
Um, but he, he's a, he's a wonderful person, uh, really kind of inspired me to collect a lot of the paperwork that I have and all, um, because I see his collection and, uh, you know, he, he doesn't collect paperwork. He collects all those things I can't afford. Um, but he's, he's got a fabulous collection and he's always willing and eager to share knowledge about it and everything and to show it to people who inquire. I mean, he's just a really wonderful guy. And it's like, man, I want to collect, but I can't afford to collect that other stuff. So I'll collect paperwork because I know graphic design. I know printing. Um, I've worked in electronic pre-press. I've worked on Heidelberg machines. I've worked on uh, a lot of different uh, kinds of presses. Um, and uh, so I had an understanding already of what went into creating the paperwork. It's in addition to the typography and everything else. Uh, and then when you start to look at what these different kinds of paper have in common, uh, it becomes pretty easy after a while to look at something and say, well, this is, you know, this is like mid 19th century French. You can tell by looking at the typesetting, the layout, the kind of paper that was used, that sort of thing. Um, and it's also intriguing to me because a lot of the printing standards today came from turn of the last century Germany. Um, the uh, DIN standards, the European paper sizes, um, all came from Deutsches Institut für Normung, uh, which is the German Institute for Standardization. Uh, and uh, Europe adopted that after World War II because you know, it kind of made a lot of sense. Um, and, and Germany really raised the bar for uh, design uh, around the same time period. You had the Bauhaus, uh, you had Jugendstil and Art Nouveau, uh, French and German running concurrently. Um, so that center of Europe is really what shaped uh, a lot of the uh, design norms that we follow today uh, in Western society. Very, <clears throat> sorry, very, very interesting. I mean, I can only, you know, the, your graphic design, like I so said, when you go and you could tell typeset and the history of the paper and all that, it's just, that's not something that a lot of people get into. And it's, it's very, like I said before, very, um, admirable that you're going through to preserve that paperwork and it's got to be hard to kind of track that stuff down opposed to once again your your hundreds and thousands of canteens the, the helmets the jackets and all that stuff to find and plus being over here in the united states how, um do you find that you're importing a lot of your paperwork are you going online and finding auctions or sales ebay overseas i mean how do you come across a lot of your german stuff yeah pretty much all of that um, there's vet bringbacks. Uh, I've got a couple pieces of paper that uh, veterans brought back that they've kept in their estate. Um, I have been to Germany, Austria, and Italy a few times. Uh, had a wonderful time wandering through. I do speak German, so as far as hunting for paperwork in Germany and Austria, it's not quite that challenging. Uh, the, the difficult thing, though, is uh, they're not allowed to sell anything with a swastika on it. Yeah. Uh, Nobody yeah. is allowed to display anything unless you work for a museum and whatnot. Um, now that doesn't mean you can't get it. Yeah, that means you got to be cautious how you do it. Um, in one particular case, uh, Penny and I went to a uh, uh, an antique store in I guess it was Vienna, and um, 
we went in and I told the proprietor, very nice lady who was about my age, I told her I was looking for um, documents and paperwork from the 1930s and 40s. And she said, oh, we, we don't have any sold books. And I'm like, no, 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 I'm not looking for that. I'm looking for the daily papers that the average Austrian might have carried with them during that time. And she said, well, I've got this. And it, it was uh, what they call a Spabuch. Um, it's a savings book. And uh, whenever you made a deposit at the bank, you would write how much that was. It's kind of like a checkbook register, mm -hmm. but it was for a savings account. And I, and, and I said, I'll take it. And, and she said, well, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's uh, 10, I think it was like the equivalent of $10. It was in shillings at the time. I think it was like 120 shillings or something. It was pre-euro. Um, and I said, no, no, that's okay. This is exactly what I'm looking for. And I started explaining my interest in history and, you know, all sorts of stuff like that. And we got to chatting and I was keeping up in my German, which I think kind of impressed her too. Um, so she said, well, I did just get something from an estate sale. Let me go into the back and see, you know, see if I, uh, if you might be interested in some of that. So she comes out and she has this box filled nice. with um, all sorts of different identity papers. And uh, one of the ladies who was involved with this estate was a member of the German Italian Bund prior to 1943 hmm. um, <laughs> and uh, she had all of her paperwork all of her correspondence all of her id cards of this organization of german and italian friendship prior to the italian capitulation in september of 43 uh and there was swastikas on everything i mean it was just loaded with them all sorts of id cards and and uh the postal savings count books and and uh, I mean, we, we chatted even further. And she said, well, would you be interested in any of this? And I'm like, oh, yes. Matt and said $50 American sold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it was, it was really cool because, you know, then I, you know, then I realized that, you know, it says, yeah, the, the, the paperwork's there. You just kind of have to let everybody know that you're not part of the police department. You're not trying to entrap anybody. Mm -hmm. You are a, a genuine collector. You're not some sort of neo-Nazi who's going to wave this under people's noses and such. And, and I'm sure, I'm sure being on that side of the, the hobby, you know, you kind of have to deal with those. When someone first meets you, perhaps comes into your <laughs> office, there's a, there's a sideways glance you have to maybe quickly correct. Oh uh, yeah, that, that, that happens a lot. Everybody kind of wants to salute you just the wrong way. And, uh, Especially and, and now. You have to kind of neck it back a little and say, no, 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 that, that's not what this is about. Um, I, I got to admit, though, uh, the funniest situation occurred when I was being interviewed for my security clearance. Um, the uh, gentleman from the Office of Personnel Management came out and was giving me all sorts of uh, questions and whatnot and he said is there anything on the internet that somebody might be able to use to blackmail you and i said what you mean other than the pictures of me in a german uniform complete with leather and jacket his eyes got real big for a moment i said no i'm a historical reenactor everybody i know knows it and if they're going to use that as blackmail then they're really not digging very far 
Um, yeah, because so, your uniform is like it's pristine. It's spot on. I mean, it's <laughs> one of the best impre- German uniform impressions I've seen. It's it's so what when when you're in uniform, what are you portraying? Uh, I I have a couple of different uh, different uh, portrayals that I have. Uh, one is the Hermann Goering. Uh, division. I have the uh, tropical and the um, regular uh, Fliegerblüse uh, for mm-hmm. that. Uh, also, member of the 228th Panzerjäger. Um, and Don, you probably remember Mike Kessinger and uh, uh, those guys. Um, Mike I Schultz I didn't or... come along till after uh, Kessinger was, you know, was no longer. I'd start doing VKE oh. probably. I've only been reenacting for eight years, so um, I'm I'm a little late to the Florida party. Oh, okay. Well, that's all right. We won't hold that against you. <laughs> but uh, yeah, that that would that would be an individual I'd recommend that you contact if you're interested in getting another Axis individual. Uh, Mike Kessinger, really really nice guy. He was the obviously because of the VKE title, um, he was the first general, and I was one of his toadies. And uh, I, uh, I I played an SS officer who, um, you know, just checked everybody's papers. And I found out something really interesting. If you're wearing a German uniform and you start talking to somebody in German and they don't understand German, they get really nervous really fast. Especially when you start yelling um, so at them. It's, it's a great way to interact with the public. And because the whole point of uh, the VKE with the Germans on the train is to make people uncomfortable so that they those people can understand exactly what it was that uh, you know that the people of Europe went through under the oppression of the Germans, um, and uh, it's it's also kind of amusing when you start talking to them in German and they respond in German. <laughs> yeah, um, especially and, and down here because like, oh, okay, uh, we can have some fun now. Yeah, this area uh, of Florida in southern Florida, we're real huge on the German uh, tourism board. Oh, really? Cool. Yeah, especially yeah. down here in Southwest Florida. Like when I first moved down here, like the German equivalent of the Discovery Channel was doing shows down here. I got four or five German clients. And let me tell you, when I go work on their computers and you ask them for a password, you know what they mm-hmm. do? They turn around and grab one of those white binders behind you. They have every single password, every piece of serial <laughs> code. Even in that, even modern day Germans are very, very into documentation. They're my only computer client that can provide me with anything I've ever asked for as far as software, key codes, passwords, anything. They have it all in white binders, just like yours, right behind them. Every one of them. It's a, that's, that's not at all unusual. Yeah, it's very true. The, 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 the concept of German efficiency is still very alive and, and uh, living very well. Uh, we had a friend of ours from uh, Bersching, which is a, a small walled city outside of Nuremberg, who met us in Salzburg uh, when we were there. And uh, we were talking to him on the phone and, and he said, well, we can come by about 10 o'clock. How's 10 o'clock sound? And we're like, perfect. Um, here's the address for the hotel that we're staying at. We'll meet you at 10. Uh, my brother stepped outside to uh, grab a smoke. And here he sees our friend and his wife wandering up, wandering down the street. And he looks at his watch and he says, to the second, it was 10 o'clock. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, my brother went, you're here. And he says, of course, it is 10 o'clock and I am German. <laughs> now, you have a book on your German uh, paperwork. And I, and I saw on your Amazon uh, author <sighs> ex, uh, description that you've done some uh, paperwork for certain uh, 
a little bit of Hollywood, some TV shows and some uh, productions and stuff like that. Yes, uh, yes. How how did your uh, how does that come to light? Well, that uh, that started out with uh, when I did my uh, repro paperwork website, um, and uh, I started reproducing. Uh, things in my collection that was kind of stuff that I would like to have, like the travel papers and uh, uh, ration cards, things like that. Um, and I was contacted out of the blue by, and I'm sorry, his name escapes me right now, um, but he was the art director for Royal Pains, which was a television show about a concierge doctor in, uh, I think it was Martha's Vineyard or in New England anyway. Uh, and uh, his number one client was this mysterious individual of German descent, and he contacted me because he wanted to know, could I do the birth certificates or any supporting documents for this character, who at one point in the show turns over all of his records, medical and otherwise, to this concierge doctor. Um, and uh, he, he had some of the paperwork like uh, naturalization papers uh, for, you know, a German that had emigrated to the United States in the 1940s, but he didn't have anything prior. To uh -huh. So I put together birth certificates and paperwork going back to about the 1850s, 1820s, um, and sent those to him and they aged them appropriately and, and everything. Um, and uh, if, if you watch that series, if you're familiar with that series, I did about half of the paperwork nice. in that big old dossier um, for uh, Royal Pains. Uh, he enjoyed what I'd put together so much that he put me in touch with, um, oh shoot, the name, Fringe, that's the name of it, um, a TV show that needed um, Soviet paperwork. And because I collect Soviet documents, I took Russian uh, at the University of Florida, and uh, uh, I've lost almost all of it, but I can still read and write Cyrillic. Um, wow. So as long as I have a good uh, Russian-English dictionary, I can do a pretty good job. Uh, Google Translate. Um, <laughs> it, it, it took some doing, um, but thankfully it stuck with me. Uh, one of these days I'm going to pick up Arabic, but that's another story. Um, but you don't have uh, at any plan. rate, at any rate, I did uh, paperwork for uh, for uh, that uh, television show as well, um, and they put me in touch with the art director for the movie Sucker Punch. Okay. They needed some World War One paperwork, and if you remember the scene, if you've seen the movie where the German officer in the trench flips the table up and all the papers go flying about a half of those are mine you know it's interesting because you would think as a casual observer oh they just got some yellow paper just type a bunch of random letters on it and then stuck it on there because the cameras don't get close up the fact that they hired you to come up with authentic paperwork that you're not going to see the <laughs> font while it's flying through the air that just yeah. goes to show how much they put in their production well it's imdb syndrome everybody on imdb will like pause a movie mm -hmm. and on this uhd tv screen zoom in to see as this flat paperwork wasn't used until 1944 yeah. why are they using it uh, in 1939 yeah we're, we're real bad about that here <laughs> his name's matt the palma he has many so, books yeah. uh german military travel papers for the love of dora discovering our world and uh, the women in my 
Is that the woman in my uniform? Woman in my uniform, yes. yes. And you can check him out at um, repopaperwork.com. Matt, please hang out with us for the rest of the show and uh, join in on the conversation because I figure having you on here, what a better time. We There's a time in the show we like to suggest books to people, and I have one that I was talking about before we went on the air, and I want to get talking to Henry about real quick. And I'm sure Jeff has cracked a few books over the last two weeks. I'm sure Henry probably has one he wants to suggest. And by all means, Matt... <clears throat> You seem like somebody probably read some books yourself, and so if you have a book or two you want to suggest, by all means. But real quick, um, I actually ordered this during the show one time. You guys remembered it was Pelu Tragic Triumph. I believe you read this one, have you not, Henry? I have. It's been a long time, but I have. I was reading this book. Now, we all know from the Pacific and Helmet for My Pillow and that little book with the old breed that uh, there's some discussion about Pelu. Pavuvu, but it's primarily talking about land crabs and and rats and and this and that. And one of the things I learned from this book was how damn small the island was to the fact that they didn't have enough room to have a quality gun range or even places for the replacements to get kind of cycled in and and learn battle exercises. And, you know, you guys know I can't read for ship, but I'm going to read this real quick. Um It says, from the beginning to the end, training on Puvuvu was little short of pandemonium and frustration. Company streets were were the only areas where men could engage in mock attacks. It was routine to see one outfit charging full tilt between rows of tents and other troops in formation standing at a rigid attention for rifle inspection or other units practicing close order drills. Quote, this would have been fine if we were getting Japs out of tents. But it's a whole different story considering we're going after reinforced bunkers. And one of the things that remind me of just the the idea and thought of these guys doing battle exercises through the streets and around tents. And, and I've talked about this before is when I first got into reenacting, I filmed a first ID. One of the things John would have us do at some of these events was because we were never together was have us do little tactical exercise through the reenactment village and we, i always thought it felt so dumb to see us going through tents and hiding behind a blacksmith and all that but so when i read that paragraph out of here i just had flashbacks of us doing the same thing henry did your dad ever really get into conversations with you or have you heard him talking about other things about pavuvu other than the rats and the, and the land crabs about how small it was and the living conditions because this book makes it sound like pavuvu was the worst thing to happen to the marines yeah. for restaging um I've actually been going through some of his papers that were never published uh, for for a project I'm working on. But he wrote about he said a lot of stuff about Pavuvu that that didn't make it into with the old breed. But um, one of the things I didn't know this, I think one of the reasons they chose Pavuvu was they wanted an isolated island where the guys could train. Mm-hmm. Uh, because I think after it may have been third Marine division after Bougainville when they, they took those guys to Guadalcanal to let them rest and refit. Um, and like they were, you know, fortifying Guadalcanal into a major rear area base, uh, which it was very vibrant by the time my dad got in theater, but, um, they, they were taking so many guys and siphoning them off into work parties and work details that the guys could hardly get any rest. And here, if I have the timing of this right in my head, they, they, they were just coming off Bougainville. So they needed to rest. Um, and then with all the, the work details and work parties, I mean, they, they just could hardly get any of that done before they had to start, you know, training for their next operation. 
So I think that was one reason why they chose Pavuvu was yeah. it was so remote and out of the way. But one of the problems they were saying in this book is it was scouted from plane. And I guess yeah. some of the leading commanders, they said if they would have landed the damn plane or even took a boat in and walked 200 yards off the beach and saw how bad the soil was and how bad the conditions were, they would have never picked that island. I guess the living conditions and just – and I guess there's – the jungle was so thick and the train was so inhospitable that henceforth those guys training amongst other men, uh, they're saying they couldn't even set up a quality gun range. They were basically plinking at coconuts on sandbags. And so mm-hmm. it was, they were just going through the motions. And, and according to this book, which it's interesting because this book, Peleliu, The Tri- Triagic Triumph, for a book on Peleliu, they do a lot on Guadalcanal and leading up to it so you can kind of see – all the decisions and shortcomings that came to the Peleliu landings. And it's so far, it's a great book, but no, I was reading, I was like, well, you know, I just heard about the land crab and the rats and the weather sucks. I didn't know that it was so damn small that they really couldn't even get training. And it took forever for the guys to kind of get, I guess, acclimated to the environment before they could actually start recovering. So they weren't even really recovering mentally or physically for ever until they finally, you know, yeah. got that kind of place in a ship shape area. Yeah, and it, it really, when they came back from Peleliu, it, it was a little better, but not by a heck of a lot. You know, by then, uh, of course, they could, I mean, I think Pavuvu is, what, 60 miles north of Guadalcanal. Mm-hmm. So they could, uh, I think Benica was not too far away. Sometimes the guys would go to Benica because uh, it was pretty well built up by then, yeah. as was Guadalcanal, obviously. Yeah, according to this book, your father made a few trips over there as well. Did he ever talk about Benica at all, other than what we saw? Yeah. um, Again, some of the stuff I've been going through that was unpublished, he talked about it quite a bit. He talked about watching watching the local islanders build the the chaplain hut on Pavuvu, you know, in the way they would – the native islanders would work together to, to their construction methods and stuff like that. He was really interested in that. I don't. I don't think that made it into with the old breed. No, I don't. I don't think so either. So, Henry, I'll put it in your court. What book have you been reading, and uh, what um, suggestions? Well, I finished Spearhead, which Jeff and I had kind of talked about a little bit. I finished that. Um, actually, just a couple of days ago, finished Bomber Boys by Patrick Bishop. I also wrote Fighter Boys. Um, so, I actually finished that just yesterday. So. For Christmas, one of the Christmas books I got was uh, Alamo and the Ardennes by McMahon, by our friend John McManus. Mm-hmm. So I may I may dive into that next. Um, I was I, either that or I was thinking. I mean, it's still kind of cold to start getting back into Pacific reading, but I'm <laughs> I'm really wanting to reread John Parshall's book on uh, Midway Shattered Sword because I got the the movie. I got the Blu-ray Midway and Fury. Jack gave me Fury for Christmas for my birthday. Midway is such. Uh, Midway is probably one of the more underrated World War II movies come out in the last what ten years or so. I I really liked it, but what did you not to sway from that? But what did I'm interested in all three? What did you guys think of uh, Fury? I liked Fury. Fury was good. Um, it was interesting because when Fury came out, that was right around the time, time I was training heavily with Second Armored, and so I was spending a lot of time walking with Sherman Tanks. I really liked it. I liked how he did the ending instead of it being all Hollywood and everybody went home to be a, a hero, only one person, spoiler alert. 
uh, survived. Um, I th- I enjoy it. I have it on DVD. Um, I watch mm-hmm. it. Um, I really don't have anything to nitpick about it. I will say it wasn't until the second or possibly the third time I watched it that the whole, the first time I watched it, the whole horse and just the way the guys acted in that apartment around everybody just kind of irked me. But after the second and third time of watching, I kind of got the point they're going for, you know, trying to knock Brad Pitt down off his high horse a little bit. And, you know, the, the, the storytelling was trying to, you know, deliver a story of how horrible war is but the first time i saw it that scene really irked me Mm -hmm. yeah that's usually what i will fast forward through if i'm watching it (laughs) Mm -hmm. yeah but uh when i was in assault amphib it was armor so uh i was i was thankful to see a world war ii film that uh did justice to uh the shermans and the guys that served in the tanks and and uh whatnot so um you know what having to fix track or fix a road wheel or anything like that is like, yep. And there, um, mm-hmm. so I, I could appreciate that. I, I did enjoy the history of it when you, the fact that you are looking at the desperation of the Germans in 1945, uh, and how so many of them just wanted it to be over. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the common sayings in Germany in 44 and 45 was enjoy the war. The peace will be terrible. Hmm. Uh, and it's it's so true in so many ways, but um, you know, and that's one of the things I'm studying right now. And another another uh, piece of work that I'm looking at is uh, Germany in the first five years after the war, how that led into the Cold War, um, and how and why East and West Germany became two separate nations. Um, and and they they really did just because the shooting stopped didn't mean that everything went back to normal. And uh, you got really got a sense for that in the first half of uh, Fury, I thought. Be honest, how many times did you pause the movie when they were in the office looking at the paperwork, making sure it was up to your, no. up to your no. stuff? <laughs> it never occurred to me, to be honest. <laughs> All right, honey, get the uh, get Fury out. <laughs> what about you, Jeff? What have you been reading? Uh, well, like uh, like Henry said, I, I'm not all the way through spearhead yet i've got a little bit left i'm a little slower reader than uh than henry but uh man what what an incredible book and um it, it from from something now i was not i was not armored uh but i did have to graduate armored reconnaissance school to in the event that i could be set in as with a bradley a bradley fighting vehicle thankfully i was not because i after going through the bradley course i didn't want to be anywhere near that piece of equipment uh, in combat now, a lot of the guys that I served with ended up in the Bradley unit. They loved it. No thanks. And you know the the, the time that I put in in, in, in driving and, and maintaining and firing uh, World War II tanks on on reenacting battlefields today. Uh, no, I, me and my dad actually put a just a, a brand new set of tracks on a half track. That was eight hours. Wow. To do it. so. No, thank you. You can have you can have all of that. Um, I, before we get too far, I don't because I don't want to forget, and and I will. Um, I know we have a lot of reenactors that listen to this podcast, so the the reenactor in me, and I'm a new reenactor as well. But the reenactor in me, I, if I was listening, I would want to tell Matt. I would want to tip my hat to Matt for um, you know to really get into character like that. You know, I'm still kind of I, I'm in between. I'm still kind of like I just want to dress up and have fun and keep history alive. And then uh, let's work on like 
pocket trash? What would, you know, the things you'd have in your pocket? What's your favorite song? What would be your favorite football team? You know, things like that. What, what life magazine should be in this picture, you know, that we take things like that. Which so pocket kind of, should I in, put my spoon in? Cause that's all I need. I threw my fork and my knife away. Things like that. <laughs> yeah. St- stuff like that. So just that little bit, you know, next level kind of stuff. Um, but you know, to have a and, and I'll tell you, I, I have a, a good Brett, a good buddy of mine who, He's a retired uh, Marine gunning sergeant who is one of the best German reenactors that I know of. I mean, he, but he, he can do just about anything. You know, he also does Marines in the, in the Pacific and World War II, but his German, and he speaks it, you know, I mean, he really, really knows his stuff. And, and he's just recently restored a few German helmets for me at my museum here because his knowledge base is incredible. And, you know, that that's important. I mean, I couldn't imagine... You know, I don't even want to do airborne. Now, I, I mean, I, I got a buddy that just gave me a, a real nice airborne uniform. He's a, this guy's a jump master with the airborne uh, demonstration team here. We had him on a, a couple episodes ago, actually. We had him on our podcast. And I wouldn't even want to be airborne because I don't even, I wouldn't begin to know, you know, without going through a jump school. And I'm never going to do that. My, my back is trash. I have no business doing that. So to... To, to be able to take, you know, a uniform from a whole nother country and really delve in like you have to know the culture, uh, you know, just the atmosphere. It, it's just so it's so impressive. But I <laughs> am I the only one that appreciates the irony of a Marine that was born on an island that still had live Japanese soldiers on it is going to grow up and be a German reenactor. Wait, wait until <laughs> I've been I laughing in my head about that this whole time. <laughs> wait until I update the website and I post photos of Matt. You know, Matt's chilling here. He's got his beard on. He's got his glasses. His hair. He's got his nice warm sweater on. Wait until you see him in this damn uniform. It's there's some pictures up. I want to see this. Uh, I, yeah, I, I, I don't have. Is that I, possible? Um, I was actually looking. Um, find here uh, well why are you looking for that one of the things that always and i guess to, we have a lot of new listeners and we've covered vke i've had meg on i've had art on in the past but we got new listeners so why are you looking for those photos uh matt uh, just a quick synopsis vke is von kessinger express it's at the florida national uh, the florida Mu- train museum uh, we've talked about in the past uh civilians come they buy train tickets and when they show up there's like a 25 foot tall swastika flag there's germans walking around they give them paperwork that matt probably uh provides they get on the train the train actually moves the track's like four to six miles long while they're on the train matt and his his asshole buddies are screaming at people and handing out paperwork and accosting young children and um train stops about two miles down they get out they execute a pilot um, this year, me and my airborne buddies attempted to put on a good show. It didn't take until day two to get it sorted out because, well, that's what happens. You get, you know, what I learned, Jeff, that uh, reenactors with uh, vehicles don't like to get out of their vehicles, but that's another story for another time. But anyhow, have a skirmish. The train goes down to the end of the track. There's another skirmish. The Americans take over on the way back. Art and Matt do a lot of improv, ad libbing. They put on a show. It's kind of like a murder mystery train ride without the murder and the dinner <laughs> and it's very i love it because if you're into improv if you're into acting of any sort you go on a train you stay in character as an ally we're looking for the german paperwork um we're looking talking to the people we're you know costing the germans and it's it's all in all it's a good time and so shout out to matt and the people who put that event on and shout out and we had um paul on 
back in 2020, in order to keep this thing alive, you guys are like, well, what are we going to do about the mask thing, right? We need mask. How are we going to do mask in 1944? And that's when Paul came up with the idea, well, we'll just make it a tuberculosis train. <laughs> it's a hospital train, right? Uh-huh. And so that explained why, and so all the all the reenactors, we had Eric Correct mask on, but that's how we got around. We just changed up the storyline and made it a hospital train, and that would basically justified everybody having mask on. And so uh, any luck finding pictures? I've got one. I'm not sure how to... I was looking for them on Facebook because I was going to I was going to share it. But anyhow, um, we'll post them up on the website, um, okay. WTSP yeah. World War Two dot com for those of you listening at home. Um, at the beginning of our little Christmas break, um, after we had John C. McManus on, um, I stumbled across the movie on Netflix and I sent you to a text message saying your homework. Did you guys check that movie out? I read about it. The Forgotten so Battle. It's about. It looks pretty solid. Have you seen that, Jeff? The Forgotten Battle? I, I don't even recall the text message. Yeah. Have you seen that one, Matt? It's on Netflix. It's about, um, it's kind of about Market Garden, but it's about the Battle of the Sledge, Sledge. How do you the put it? Estuary. Yes. And, mm-hmm. and, and the great thing is, is it's a Dutch movie. And unlike American movies where we just have everybody speak in English, each country and person spoke their correct language. And so when the English and the Americans were on there, it was all in English. When the Germans were on there, it was all in German and so on. And the Dutch resistance. But basically, um, and I even reached out to McManus, like, did you see this movie? He's like, yeah, I thought it was great. The first movie I can recall modern days that they show the inside of a glider. They show the British glider riders going in. Um, the Dutch resistance. It's a fantastic movie, but it's about that ending of you know, the Operation Market Garden era that we're talking about with McManus, and um, it's fantastic. You guys got to watch it. Um, it's it's really, really well done. And yeah. um, it's, uh, like I said, it's a Dutch movie, I want to say. Yeah, but it's, you're correct. Yeah. It's fantastic. You guys got to check it out. Maybe watch it on the weekend or something, but it's it's very, very, very cool. And I didn't know that uh, Montgomery's son basically weaseled his way into that mission he 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 was a glider rider hmm. and uh his his glider was shot down they were him and four survivors of his gliders were like 50 miles from the drop zone and they were in a flooded area and just trying to survive and their leading commander was basically paralyzed and they were floating him around on a makeshift raft and it's a damn good it's a damn good movie so that's my suggestion for uh, all y'all listen it's on netflix it's called the forgotten battle um, it's very, I've very got good. one that's not a suggestion to watch. I came across the other day. Uh, the Eagle has landed. Not familiar with it. I remember that one. Keep it, keep it that way, Don. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. So it sounds great. Okay, um, it, it's it's a brief synopsis. Is they uh, want to send German paratroopers to England dressed as Polish soldiers to capture Winston Churchill. Okay. <laughs> What could go wrong? All I have to tell you is it is done in 1976. All I have to tell you is Michael Caine is a German. <laughs> Michael <Mike> Caine. <laughs> I'll stop there. <laughs> the novel is much better than the movie. You're you're talking about 1970s movie capabilities, and it was not a big budget film by any stretch. The head of wardrobe was the. 
the novels. Donald Sutherland, you know, uh, I, I will say Robert Duvall played a great part in it. He also plays mm-hmm. uh, plays a German. Uh, Donald Pleasance plays Imler. Uh, and I'm, you know, I'm not like, I'm not trying to trash. I'm just saying that's that maybe one you you may not want to go after. But I, I did agree. I don't know who said it a minute ago because I'm a big, I'm a huge Midway fan. I think that movie was yeah. great. I and almost I think really. I relished the conversation that I had with the military advisor for that film, Harlan Glenn. I spent over an hour on the phone. We were just back and forth. We just clicked that day and spoke the same language. And some of the stuff I kind of was like. You know, you know, you don't want to like sound like you don't be that guy. Yeah. Like I'm like, hey, just <laughs> curious, just curious. How about you know, what about why did y'all you know? And I just kind of weaseled into you know some of the things that I thought, ah, oh, why why did y'all end up doing that instead of you know what was documented as what really was and things like that. But you know, and that's when I really started learning that. And this was right after Walking Point, so I kind of had a pretty good idea of how the movies really kind of go it's you don't ever blame the advisor for stuff you know like saying that because you were the advisor like what why are you my advisor you guys are going to do you're going to do what you want you know um but you know midway kind of i feel like midway's kind of got a bad bad. i don't know why i i was going to say i almost feel that midway has the wrong title because it, it covers a lot title. more ground than Midway. If the HBO's miniseries didn't exist, it should have been called the Pacific or the PTO something because well, they cover a lot of ground. Payback. I would have called it Pacific Payback. Um, but cool. and that's also a book, you know, that there may have been some complications there, I guess. But yeah, I think the title's wrong. And I don't know if it was was it the timing. It just it just seemed like it flopped, and I made sure that I saw it. I was reenacting in West Texas when it opened in theaters. We were we were doing a um, it was a reunion for the Twelfth Armored Division out there at the museum out in uh, I think it's Nabling. Cool. So did a big uh, show for these guys out there, and that was opening weekend. So took all the reenactors. You know, we went to the theaters, and man, as soon as I got home. I took my son and my dad to go see like, oh man, we got to see this in theaters, you know, before it's too late. And I don't know. It's just, not a lot of people are talking about it. Um, you're like, oh, you know, like since I was well, a kid, that's what, I, that's the kind of movie I wanted to see. It really is a good movie. I mean, they do a great job. I think I agree 100%. I love the movie. I mean, I, I've watched it three times since I got it and I'd already seen it in the theater. So I think to comment on that, Jeff, you know, and Matt way in here, but I think it it did well. It made money. It it did very well at the box office because I looked it up. I was really interested in that. Mm -hmm. If, if you feel like people weren't talking about it, think about the national mood. I was going to say it was 2019. Yeah. It's 2019. What's going on in our country? I mean, a bunch of dudes in world war two, a bunch of men being heroes Mm -hmm. and I could add to that, but I'm not, that's not going to get talked about in this day and age, sadly. The movie I thought was great. The, the shows I watched, like Paul Wood Edge's World War II TV. Uh, he had Draken FL, who's this big YouTuber, a naval history expert. The, the things I hear about it that people say that are negative is like heavy on the CGI. Well, but, how many naval battleships are around? They're, they're, they're not trashing the movie as a whole. Yeah. I, I've heard the same thing. Yeah, it's all it's also CGI heavy. Well, Where's the Akagi right now? Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. I loved it. I loved it. I'll keep on watching it. I thought it was great. 
Yeah. It's not bad as long as you do it well. And, and I think they succeeded in doing that. I mean, when, when you can interview veterans and they their, their one complaint was that your altimeter wasn't spinning fast enough, <laughs> you know, then you've done a pretty darn good job. Yeah. And I mean, that was the one quote that stuck with me from a veteran. It says, yeah, when you go on a dive, that thing spins like a top. It wasn't <laughs> yeah. So let me ask a question here about, about the dynamics of being in a dive. Let me ask a question to all of you. Wouldn't they have had their goggles down and their canopies closed? Yeah, but when you're an actor, you want FaceTime, so you always put the goggles up. <laughs> Is yeah, that what it was? would have been down. The canopy's not necessarily closed because we are talking about being in the Pacific in June. Mm-hmm. True. I have heard they left them open because they would fog up the gun sight or the windshield. I wouldn't surprise if, me. Yeah. If yeah. I was back to no corner and someone said, okay, you got to tell me the worst scene or the worst part of midway. The only scene I could really nitpick and, and like could have done without was like when he was traversing from one ship to the other via the rope and then it snapped and then he's still hanging mm-hmm. on. That's like the only super Hollywood scene in that movie. But it, once again, it's it's a blockbuster movie meant to be, and that you, you want that kind of action in there for the general public. So if I was backed in the corner, that would be the only scene I could even nitpick. I think it's a but, great movie. Uh, yeah, 100%. But the other thing, Roland Emmerich had to make that as an independent movie, and he wow. had Chinese finance. So think about that. He could not get... You talk about block, but he could not get the Hollywood A-listers to back. I don't like A-listers, and so of course they're not going to talk about it. I mean, you got yeah. Woody Woody Harrelson's in there, but I, honestly, I well, dig. I'm talking about like Paramount Pictures yeah. or twenty. You know, that's what I mean. Right? Any of the big producers that would have been able to bankroll that without even blinking. I kind of yeah, they I, didn't want to touch it. Mm-mm. I kind of like like uh, what was it? Um, nineteen the World War One movie they put out nineteen. 1917. 1917. I like movies when they're not chalked, like history movies, when they're not chalked full of A-list actors because then it doesn't bump you. When you're watching a movie of up-and-comers that you've never seen, like the first time you watch Band of Brothers, and maybe you recognize the one guy from Office Space, but that was about it, and Jimmy Fallon near the end. And But to me, when you're watching a great movie and the actors are effing phenomenal and you don't know who they are, you will five years from now because they're going to blow up. I love that because it doesn't take you out of it. It doesn't bump you. So I must prefer not having A-list actors. Yeah, sometimes A-list actors kind of kind of ruins it for you. Um, Don, real quick, I wanted to mention one more book before we before we shut it down sure. here. And and Don and Don and Henry, uh, you guys you guys already know, and I'll share this with Matt and, and with all of our listeners. Uh, lost a good friend here recently. Mm. Um, guy that I met uh, uh, probably five five or six years ago. And, um, you know, you, throughout my life, there's been World War II veterans that you kind of, you kind of latched on to, you know, I've met, and like you guys, I'm sure have, you've met a ton of vets all across the country at different, you know, programs and, and air shows and everything. And here recently, as I've gotten into to reenacting and now, you know, now running a gosh dang museum, um, you know, those, those opportunities, uh, while they should be abundant, they they are no longer as abundant because the men are no longer there. Um, so it was it was a tough one, but but uh, but we lost Mr. Fred Harvey. Uh, Tilly is his first name, T. Fred Harvey, and uh, this guy was a paramarine, uh, served on Bella Bella, 
Bougainville and spent nine days on Iwo Jima before it took three Japanese grenades to come in on him to take him off the island. Oh, and um, he, uh, <laughs> he, I asked him about the, the, we were talking about the paramarines one time. He said, you know, Ira Hayes was in my jump school. And of course, that's the, our, our famous uh, Pima Indian in the, in, the, in the famous photograph mm-hmm. on top of Suribachi. Uh, and I asked, I said, yeah. You know, what was he like? He talked, you know, he said, man, he said, I don't think he said 10 words the whole time we were in jump school. You know? <laughs> um, but he's just chock full of stories. His humor. I mean, the guy was a real lady killer. Anytime he walked out there with me and, and put a microphone in front of him. And, um, you know, it's just that, that kind of, you know, what a guy, what, what, a, what a classy guy. And uh, he has uh, he has published a book. Uh, this one here, I hope it's not backwards. No, it's good. I'd do it again. And, and this is really his whole kind of his whole story growing up, you know, Dust Bowl, Texas. Uh, he said that, uh, I think he was one of nine children, I want to say, and, uh, something like seven sisters. Uh, mom was, uh, was native American. And he said, you know, we were so poor. Our, our pancakes only had one side. <laughs> <You know? laughs> The guy, you know, the guy was, the guy was great. And, and, you know, he always, anytime he was talking, you know, he said, Oh, I've got another, I got another book. You know, I published, hell yeah, I do it again, but I'm working on another book. And then, you know, strategic silence. Oh, well, what's, what's, what's the title of the new book? Uh, well, on second thought, <laughs> you know, would be his response. Uh, so we were lucky. I spent New Year's Day at the Audie Murphy VA hospital in San Antonio. We took the wife and all the kiddos down there. And, um, you know, he, we thought we were going to lose him before that. And, uh, he had a great day, you know, he was talking with us, my son and my oldest son and I, we went down in our Marine Corps P-41s and, uh, I, I, um, I actually present him with, uh, with a new, uh, World War II victory medal that I had here because I told him, I said, you know, Fred, you know, people like us don't care so much about the medals that they pin on you. That's for other people to care about it. You know, we, we don't, because our medal is coming home and raising a family and just breathing air. Um, but other people seem to care. And I said, you know, uh, I started thinking the night before I went to see him, we don't have a Korea war victory medal. We don't have a Vietnam victory medal. We don't have operation Iraqi freedom or enduring freedom victory medals. You know, he really is the last of the generation of fighting men, you know, that know, what victory is. And that's pretty sad to think about uh, because the blood and the gore and the carnage and the bone and the pink mist in the air is the same in any war. Uh, but to know what victory is like and, and to see these guys slipping away. And of course he was 98. He did it all. He said it all, um, you know, and it's just what a treasure. So I'm, I'm asking, uh, you know, all of our all of our listeners to uh, go on YouTube. I mean, he's done some great YouTube uh, video interviews. Uh, he, he was I, my wife actually pulled up a video of him on Jocko's uh, podcast, whatever. I don't remember what the name of his is, but they they really uh, I think it's just called Jocko. I, Jocko I, Willis. Yeah, <laughs> probably. Yeah. Uh, I've never listened to it. But after hearing that clip, I want to hear more from 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 Jocko. But you know, they, they had Fred in the studio there and just really talking up, you know, quoting from his books and taking some really neat passages from his book. So, you know, get on there and, and, and 
buy the dang book and, and read it because um, you know he really was he was a he was a good friend. It's a really neat perspective on uh, on just a marine from Texas and in World War II. Can you uh, just give us the Reader's Digest quick version of his boot story? <laughs> oh gosh, that's the one thing I remember his boot story. Yeah, because he was a friend. paramarine. He was a paramarine and and. And, you know, I was I was trying to get around that with uh, with him in the hospital. I didn't get a chance, but he was talking about how he remembered he lost his dungarees. He only had one pair of dungarees. Somebody took him or something. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't have a uniform to wear. You know, he said we didn't have enough stuff. And he talked about how when he was going over, they didn't even have a weapon for him. Now, he ended up in a he was an engineer in a demo team at Iwo Jima with a 1911 <laughs> that his mom bought for him. And and got it to him in California before he shipped out. He said he wanted a Colt forty five. So you know that that really is a testament to just golly how uh, you know how not superpower we were and what we had to do. Kind of talking about what what, what Matt was talking about before with you know to, to throw ourselves to throw seventy five percent of our army at the German army is is incredible to think about. But yeah, so Fred had. He had very small feet, and they didn't have boots small enough for him. And and I forget all the details to his story, but I remember the shoes that he had had holes in them, and he had cardboard and everything else in them. And that was the only shoes that they that the Marine Corps had, okay keep your shoes because we don't have anything to fit them little feet. And uh, somehow, somewhere through during his training or, or in jump school, somebody took his shoes. And had them retread with new soap. <laughs> that part I do remember, <laughs> and I'm sure it's all it's all in the book. But um, that was that was tough. You know, that was tough to see him go. And and um, you know, uh, Don, you can you can go on. I'm not on Facebook anymore. But you can go on Instagram. Got some pictures of, of him and I. Yeah, I saw him. Pictures of, from with the family that we, uh, to, you know, and to to just listen to him talk. Uh, was really neat. He was talking about how Tyrone Power was was the guy who taught him how to shave. He never shaved before, and he said, "I couldn't get that stuff. It was just running off my face." <laughs> you know? It was just what a treasure. And oh, and uh, he's done so much. He'd come out to my air show, sell his books, and hang out with us. And he just that's a tough one to lose. Like the, you know, they all are. Mm-hmm. They all are. Yeah. Henry, it's that time. It's time for Henry's Plugs. He's the most active member of the What's the Scuttlebutt podcast, and so now it's time for Henry's Plugs. <laughs> what do you got coming up, Henry? <laughs> he wonders why we bust his chops. Now, now we know. Oh, God. Well, uh, okay, so I was on Angus Okay, Wallace so see, I told podcast. you. No, go ahead. I just stepped all over you, but go ahead. <laughs> you broke my bit, dude. <laughs> Henry, are you done yet? <laughs> But anyhow, <laughs> Angus Wallace's World War II podcast uh, that should be airing any day now. I did put in a good plug for our show, so our that show. was good. Um, and then I'm going to be on Paul Wood Edge's World War II. We're going to have Paul at the end of January. I want to be on his show again in February, talking about when I went back to Peleliu because he's doing a series of shows going back to the Pacific with you know that that kind of theme with different people. So he wanted to do one with me going back to Peleliu. So that's that's what's coming up for me. And Matt is our honorable guest. You have any plugs you want to get out? Uh, no, uh, other than uh, feel free to stop by and look at my author page on uh, uh, Amazon.com. You can order my books there. 
Um, uh, taking a quick step back for a book plug, though, uh, I did recently finish a book called The Birth of the Nazis, uh, and it deals, it deals with something very different, and that is the organization and uh, fighting that the Fry Corps did between 1919 and 1921. Um, really very interesting read uh, about a part of German history that not very many Americans get a chance to see. Uh, go to Germany and mention Freikorps and, and, and well, you can just feel the temperature going up in the room. Um, they're, they're about as popular as the Landsknecht were from the uh, 15th century. Um, and that time in Germany was pretty much like the 15th century uh, between the communists and the Freikorps and, uh, and uh, you know, all the other political trials and tribulations going on at the time. But it's, it's a very good read. It's incredibly detailed. Um, so if you want to get a feel for what was going on at that time, it's a good, uh, you know, I highly recommend it. Um, but if you're one of those individuals who likes to read, who doesn't want to get inundated with detail, this might not be your book. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. Um, I think it's safe to say that a majority of our American counterparts who aren't in a world war two just assume that Hitler started the Nazi party, but that wasn't the case. And, uh, so yeah, it'd be interesting for people to, uh, to see how that all came to be. Well, I think that's going to about wrap it up for this episode of the what's the scuttlebutt podcast. I want to thank everybody for hanging out with us. Thanks. We met the Palmer for coming on Jeff Copsetta, Henry, I guess, and everybody else. Um, it was a fantastic time. It was great talking to you guys after two weeks off uh, at a certain point. I was like, this kind of sucks. I want to do a podcast. And so, uh, Just you guys. I'm happy to have you guys back for, as Henry affectionately refers to it, our, our weekly threesome. <laughs> No, and Matt's just sitting in the corner watching. So thank you guys so much. Great. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much for inviting me. And if if you ever need a a fourth brain, you know, feel free to give me a holler. Absolutely. And so thanks everybody for hanging out with us. And we will talk to you sometime next week. This has been a Digital 410 production. (laughs) 